Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15, we read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake... Those days will be shortened. The chapter begins with the disciples' admiration over the temple proper. The temple mount and those buildings, the magnificent buildings. And Jesus predicts that not one stone would be left upon another. On the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples ask Jesus, When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the age in verse 3? Jesus gives a warning that those seeking signs are subject to deception. The Lord then proceeds to describe nine signs in three sections that increase in frequency and intensity. And so... This is called, if you will, the beginning of sorrows in verse 8. <clears throat> and then a period launched by the presence of what he calls the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and a dreadful time known as the great tribulation, marked by severe judgment. Jerusalem is going to be judged. Because of sin. The world is judged because of sin. The nine signs are number one, false messiahs in verse five, global violence in verse six, natural disasters in verse seven, severe religious persecution in verse nine, a terrible apostasy, internal strife, betrayal and divisions in verse 10, ever increasing false leaders with a false message and false hope in verse 11, the increase or proliferation of sin, and then the detachment of affection as the love of many grow cold in verse 12, the endurance of some in verse 13, global evangelism in, in verse 14. And so, in short, Deception by false teachers, verses 4 and 5. Destruction by war, 6 and 7. Devastations by natural disasters, verse 7 and 8. Deliverance to tribulation by believers, in verse 9. Defection from the truth, and then the gospel in the whole world, in verse 14. So the signs increase 
intensity, frequency, right up to the end, a persuasive case could be clearly made that the 20th century saw more war, more bloodshed, more persecution than any previous century. But now at the beginning of the 21st century, we're on track to eclipse even the 20th century in intensification of these signs and of these trials. Remember, the nation of Israel experienced a rebirth in 1948. Since 1948, surrounded by her enemies, she seems poised to experience further attack, further difficulty, further problems. And so Jesus gives another sign, something I'm calling the tenth sign. And that's the name of this message this morning, the tenth sign. It's following this sign where a warning is given, get out of Dodge, read Jerusalem. Run for your lives, verses 16 through 20. Jesus predicts a tribulation of unparalleled catastrophe in verse 21. And then he gives a promise in verse 22 that unless those times were cut short for the elect's sake, all human flesh would perish. In other words, he's describing a time of such severe catastrophe that people during this period are going to wonder whether or not the human race can even survive. So there are several things to keep in mind. The way that Jesus is couching this, it would appear that the destruction of Jerusalem, the Lord's return, the world's end, occur all at the same time. And so it begins with the appearance of the abomination of desolation in verse 15. Look what it says. Therefore, in light of the verse, verses 1 through 14, when you these nine signs increasing in frequency and intensity... Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. There seem to be several clues that are given in this single sentence. At least four things, whatever this is, it will be, number one, witnessed or seen. Therefore, when you see, Believers will see this take place. They'll see this happening. Because remember what the text itself is saying. When you see this, when you see the terrible trials, respond. Number two, it or he is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. It or he will stand in the holy place. I think the temple a Jewish temple, a rebuilt temple. Number four, whoever reads this, now think carefully. If you can read and you have a Bible with you, that's you and me. Or who is ever there at that time, whoever reads are invited to understand and apparently act on what it is that they 
read or understand. We know from history that Jerusalem experienced a terrible desolation in the first century at the hand of the Romans. We also know that the temple was destroyed. Jesus speaks these words around 31, 32, 33 A.D. The temple is destroyed by both Vespasian and Titus and the combined armies of the 10th and the 12th legion and they destroy the temple. The problem seems to be with verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, not ever. Which seems to indicate something far future. Was it a horrible time in 70 AD? Yes. I've already indicated to you that a million Jews perished and another million were taken captive and enslaved. But whatever this is, it's taking place in the far future because we've, we've seen holocausts of, of greater proportions even in World War II. So some Bible scholars believe that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet isn't simply an event. It is an event, but it's a person who participates in that event. The abomination of desolation is an event, but it's also a man. He's called the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He's called the Antichrist in 1 John, who at the middle of the tribulation period breaks his covenant, which he made at the beginning of the tribulation with the Jewish people. That according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So I need to pause for just a moment, because if we simply interpret this sign, in terms of things that took place in the past, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who enters a temple and desecrates that temple, Titus in 70 AD, who burns the temple to the ground and desecrates the, the temple. If we simply interpret it in terms of the past, like our preterist or partial preterist friends, and you may not know what that means. A preterist is a person who believes that all of the prophecies in the Bible have already taken place. A partial preterist is a person who believes that most of the prophecies have taken place, including those in chapter 24, but who still see in the future a return of Jesus. I suspect that their position is wrong. Now, in all fairness to our preterist and partial preterist friends, if everything has already taken place in the past, then we also run the risk of misinterpreting the text if it's already finished. So one of two things is true. The prophecy has been fulfilled or the prophecy remains unfulfilled. I'm going to suggest to you that it remains unfulfilled. And I'm going to, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We remember that God's word isn't a secret. It's a revelation. We're commanded to search the scriptures in order to know the scriptures. Jesus, in effect, is inviting us to study the book of Daniel. 
Now, I've studied the book of Daniel, and I have literally dozens of teachings in the media room and online. But we have to, at least in brief, look at the passages in Daniel. There are three relevant passages in the book of Daniel that we're going to look at very, very briefly this morning. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27... If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there or you might want to jot it down. There we read 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jewish people. And for your holy city. What is the holy city? It's not Babylon. It's Jerusalem, which lies in ruins as Daniel receives this prophecy. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand. There it is again. Know and understand. Verse 22. Whoever, verse 15. Whoever reads... Let him understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant or an agreement or a treaty or a pact with many for one week, a group of seven. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. The expression, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, is an expression, an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew, but also translated into the Greek. In Hebrew it says, Upon a wing or a pinnacle of abomination shall come the desolator. Or upon wings as a desolator shall come abomination. Now abomination connects the word to the thing that's happening. The abomination means some idolatrous act. Some sacrilegious act. It's an act that is so disgusting that it offends God. So we're talking about something that's idolatrous or sacrilegious. And so of desolation mean that which causes the desolation. In this case, it's the abomination which makes desolation. So in Matthew 24, 15, it points to a person who causes the desolation. And literally in history, 
hundreds of years later after Daniel wrote these words, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he was a Seleucid king, a direct descendant of the Greek generals who occupied the territory. He came into Jerusalem. He literally caused sacrifice to cease. He kills a pig in the sanctuary. He literally causes it to be defiled. The Maccabean revolt takes place. They re-cleanse the temple, which initiates the feast of Hanukkah, or lights, if you will. So there was something that took place in history past, and then there was something fast forward into the future of 70 AD, where Titus comes, a Roman soldier lights the inner sanctuary and the veil that separates the inner sanctuary on fire. The gold in the sanctuary melts and the Roman soldiers literally dismantle the temple. In Mark 13, 14, it uses the masculine article which suggests that this is a person. In the literal Greek in Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, it says... The desolating sacrilege set up where he should not be. Again, speaking of a person. And in Daniel 9.27, it speaks of a prince who causes the desolation. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, it says, And forces shall be mustered by him. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. During the Maccabean revolt, there wasn't 1,290 days. During the, the, the Roman destruction, there wasn't 1,290 days. Now, normally three and a half years is a lunar calendar. The Jews went not by a solar calendar, but by a lunar calendar of 360 days per year. And so we ask and answer the question, why is this? Again, Charles Ryrie in his study Bible says, quote, at the midpoint of the tribulation week, Antichrist will abolish Jewish sacrifices. From that time to the end, it will be 1,290 days. Normally, a three and a half year period of 360 days per year would include only 1,260 days. According to Ryrie, he says the extra 30 days mentioned here allow for the judgments which will take place after the second coming of Christ. So the 70 weeks are determined for your people. These are Jewish people. Your city, Jerusalem. The Jews had in their calendar not only a week of seven days, it was called a heptad, but a week of seven years. That means a unit of seven years. We see that in Genesis 29, 27, Leviticus 25, verse 3. So according to Daniel, God determined 
490 years to bring about everlasting righteousness. Now, time doesn't allow me to give a detailed examination of these texts, but in the interest of brevity and clarity, let me just say a couple of things. Daniel, in context of Daniel chapter 9, remember what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm inviting you to study the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, in context, Daniel asks the Lord to forgive his people to restore them to the land. That's in chapter 9, verses 15 through 19. In response to this prayer, please forgive us. Please allow us to return to the land. God sends an angel, Gabriel, in verses 20 through 27, with a message. God will successfully deal with his people. God will accomplish his plans and his purposes for Israel. He has a plan for Israel. It's going to unfold in a specified amount of time. It's going to involve 70 sets of seven, or a total of 490 years. God's prophetic clock will start ticking with the command to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the year will fall into three distinct categories. There's going to be a set of 49 years. This will take place as the walls are being rebuilt, verse 25. The second period is going to involve a period of 434 years, which will continue until the Messiah appears and is cut off. It says in the Hebrew, kerot. That means severed crucified in verse 26. The third period is the last seven years, at which time the events of this great tribulation will unfold in verse 27. The first period is one of the most attested dates in all of human history. It's March 14th, 445 BC. We happen to know that it's in the 20th year of the Persian king Artaxerxes. The first two chapters of Nehemiah inform us that the command was issued in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Again, historically attested from 445 BC to 396 BC, the key event was the building of the streets and the walls of Jerusalem, even in troublesome times. And this is a literal description that's given in Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. The second period of time takes place between 396 BC to AD 30. 62 weeks of years. At this second period of time, Messiah is cut off, it says, but not for himself. It, it, you can find that in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Jesus is crucified. He is crucified. Jesus is killed. Jesus is killed not because he's done something wrong, but because we've done something wrong. Sir Robert Anderson did the math. He combined the first two periods of years, 483. Then he multiplied them by 360 lunar calendar, biblical days, and came up with 173,880 days. 
Anderson then points out that if you fast forward from March 14, 445 BC, add 173,880 days, you arrive at April 6th, 32 AD. Do you know what happened on April 6th, 32 AD? It's the events that were talked about in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus in his triumphal entry enters into the city of Jerusalem. And remember they cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But also remember this is a time when Jesus weeps over the city in part. And he says, how could you not know this the day of your visitation which Daniel prophesied 550 years earlier? Surely Jesus had this prophecy in mind in Luke 19.47. If you had known, even you, at least in this thy day, the things that belong to thy peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It was on that very same day, exact same day, that the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus, Luke 19.47. So Daniel, to the day, correctly predicts the presentation of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, five and a half centuries in advance. Between the second and the third period, there's a divine timeout. And some people will cry foul. They'll say, what gives you the right to declare a timeout? How can you say that the prophetic clock stopped? How come it didn't continue to, to tick? Did God's dealing with the Jew cease seven years later? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is no. So why in the world would I say that there's a gap? It would appear that God stopped the clock on the cross of Calvary. Jesus is cut off. This divine timeout from the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus has been called the church age or the mystery of the church. Well, does the Bible ever give examples where there is a timeout from one specific moment to the next specific moment? And the answer is yes. Three examples come to my mind. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, that's Bethlehem, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's the millennial kingdom. Between the comma of the son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders, already thousands of years have gone by. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, Jesus never sat upon the throne of David or upon his kingdom. Again, at the beginning of verse 6, child is born. Gap minimum 20 centuries, separated by a colon. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, 
O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, comma, upon the colt of the foal of a donkey, dot, 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 and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 is a clear reference to Jesus' triumphal entry. Verse 10 goes directly into a millennial kingdom that takes place thousands of years later. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. In verse 2, between verse 1 and verse 2, is the earthly ministry of Jesus and the future millennial kingdom of Jesus. Those are three examples of a timeout in the text. Seven years remain on God's prophetic clock. And what, pray tell, will mark that final countdown? It would appear that in part, it's this tenth sign. What will get the clock moving once again? It would appear that someone is going to come out of the woodworks. This someone is going to negotiate a peace between Israel and Israel's enemies. It's interesting to me that there's almost a supernatural desire on the part of the world's leaders to negotiate a peace in the Middle East, between Israel and her enemies. It would appear that this peace is going to be interrupted. It would appear that this temple is going to be rebuilt. It would appear that future sacrifices are part of a future temple. You would be making a serious mistake if you think that this future temple and these future sacrifices are a good thing, an honorable thing, a God-honoring thing. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear there is no sacrifice for sin other than the person of Jesus Christ. So for the person who attempts to create a mechanism of cleansing apart from Jesus is on a hopeless Journey, this antichrist figure goes into this temple. He breaks the treaty that he has brokered. He causes the sacrifice to cease. The tenth sign moves the invisible hand of God to his hand on the timer, which begins the final countdown, the final chapter, the final week of God's dealing with God's people. And if you ask me the question, when will this happen? I have two answers. My first answer is, I don't know. 
My second answer is at the appointed time. God has appointed a time. And at that appointed time, it will happen. Chapter 12, verse 11, lists periods of time in Daniel. 1,260 days, verses 5 through 10. A period of 1,290 days, chapter 12, verse 11. A period of 1,335 days in verses 12 and 13. A total of 1,290 days plus an additional 45 days. So how does looking into the past give us a glimpse of the future? Jesus, remember, has invited us to look into the past in order to understand the future. What does the future hold? All of the nine signs that I've brought to your attention will increase and will become more frequent. And then there will be a seminal time of this tenth sign. Now again, one of two things has already happened. If the tenth sign has already occurred, then guess what? Bible's not true. Jesus was lying. He was, mistaken is not a strong enough word. You can't pretend to know all things and then not know all things. Jesus describes a time of unprecedented horror and difficulty. And he's going to appeal to that. Look in verses 16 through 20. The appeal. He's describing a time. He says, then let those who are in Judea, not in Denver, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight be not in winter or on the Sabbath. Those who are in Judea, when this sign takes place, remember what we understand by reading the prophet Daniel. A rebuilt temple, a covenant is made. A rebuilt temple is initiated. Sacrifices are initiated. A human being who pretends to be God declares himself God in that temple. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people from all four corners of the world, wherever they happen to be, should all of a sudden go, wait a minute, this guy's a fraud. This guy's an ex-employee of heaven currently employed by hell. This is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist's commitment to exterminate the Jews will require all Jews to run for their lives. Jesus doesn't say store up water. He doesn't say buy guns, gold, and groceries. He says, look what it says, run for your life. Let those who are in Judea flee. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Run. The Lord told Noah to build an ark because the world was ripe for judgment. Righteous Lot was told to leave Sodom because it was ripe for judgment. Jesus is basically saying, you need to go and you need to go now because this is when the judgment begins in earnest. In the past, during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabees, during the time of the surrounding of Jerusalem by the Roman armies, 
in the past, the Jew that stood the best chance for survival wasn't the one who stayed in Jerusalem. It was the ones who ran for their life. According to church tradition, which we read in Eusebius, the, the elders of Jerusalem received some sort of revelation or note that they were to leave Jerusalem prior to the, the, the destruction of the temple. They fled to a place in the Transjordan called Pella. And they waited out the catastrophe. The Bible predicts a future holocaust for the Jewish people. I wish this wasn't true. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, it is true. It says, quote, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it, verse 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. During the time of the Maccabees, one third of the people didn't remain in the land and two thirds weren't killed. During the time of the Romans, two thirds weren't killed and one third remained in the land. I'm going to suggest to you that almost half were killed and the other fled for their life and they did not remain in the land. It is impossible that the Maccabean revolt or the revolt of the Romans fulfills this prophecy. And so the circumstances don't seem to fit the facts. The Jewish people have been the object of prejudice and persecution in the past. And the tragedy seems to be that the Bible indicates a future suffering of Holocaust proportions. It's only the intervention of the Messiah that will cause the slaughter to cease. The second coming of the Lord Jesus will halt the Antichrist's commitment to destroy the Jewish people. Some Sabbath-keeping Christians point to this passage as proof that Christians are obligated to keep the Sabbath, but nothing could be further from the truth. The context is Jewish people living in the last days in Jerusalem and Judea. Clearly, people in the Middle East, and in particular in Jerusalem and its suburbs, they have flat-topped roofs. Those of you who are going with me to Jerusalem, or you've been there, if you look around, you can see to this very day all of the flat-topped roofs. Jesus is telling the end-time Jew and the end-time Gentile who happen to be in Jerusalem and Judea, run. Jesus isn't telling the end-time Jew and the end-time person to stand and fight. He doesn't say, store up stuff. Jesus says, don't take anything with you. Run. He says, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing moms. Why? Because being pregnant and being a nursing mom, they're going to experience greater hardship, greater difficulty. They're going to be at greater risk. Well, does this mean that women shouldn't get pregnant or mothers shouldn't nurse their babies? Of course not. Jesus isn't suggesting you stop reproducing. What he's suggesting is there's going to come a time when there are going to be obstacles that are going to put you at risk. 
And why are the Jews warned and hoping that it's not on the Sabbath? Well, who keeps the Sabbath? The Jews. To this very day, radical Jews in and around Jerusalem, if you break the Sabbath, some have been known to pick up rocks and throw them at you. Public transportation could be unavailable. Now, I want you to think about this. With no transportation comes more threat and more dead. So what does this mean for you and for me? I think what it means is there's a time to run and there's times to wait. There are times in our lives where we have to wait and there's times in our lives where we fight and there are times when we run. In the Bible, the time when you run is when a place is going to experience certain judgment. I heard the story of a ship that was sinking that was loaded with precious cargo like gold and jewels and not willing to let the valuables go down with the ship. People started to grab the gold and the jewels. Now, when you're sinking and you're in the ocean, do you think having heavy gold is an asset or a liability? I think you know it's a liability. So right here, Jesus gives us the answer. When a place is ripe for judgment, run. Sometimes running and hiding is the only option. And look at verse 12 or 21, the great tribulation. In verse 21, it says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Pause. Note verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation. Was there pain and problem and heartache and sorrow after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Yes. But was it a time not since the beginning of the world? No. Was it worse than World War I and World War II? Where literally not just 6 million Jews died, but 20 million human beings also died. The Lord reveals three more signs that occur shortly after this abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus describes a great tribulation, a crisis of such magnitude that it threatens ex human existence. By the way, that time has never existed on the earth until 19, shortly after 1945. In 1945, we acquired nuclear power. In 1948, Russia acquired nuclear power. By 1952, England and France had nuclear power. In the middle of the 1950s, when you push forward to 1960 and into the 1970s, India has nuclear power. Pakistan has nuclear power. China has nuclear power. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that North Korea doesn't have nuclear power or that Iran is well on its way to nuclear power. There exists at this moment in time and space the available power to destroy every man, woman, and child on the planet Earth. The signs are severe calamity in verses 16 through 22, subtle confusion in 23 through 27, sinful corruption in verse 28. Jesus says, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. Whatever this is, search human history at its worst, this is worse. World War I, this is worse. World War II, this is worse. Bigger than Noah's flood, 
bigger than God's judgment on Babylon. The word great tribulation is the key to understanding the warning. The Bible uses no less than 12 phrases to describe this time. The most frequent phrase is the day of the Lord, Isaiah 2.12, Isaiah 13, over and over again. It's the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. The phrase reappears in the book of Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. It's called the day of indignation in Isaiah 26.20. It's called the day of God's vengeance, Isaiah 34.8 and 63.1 through 6. It's called the time of Jacob's sorrow. Or Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Daniel calls it the overspreading of abominations in verse, chapter 9, verse 27. The time of trouble such as there never was, Daniel 12, 1. The 70th week, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. The end of time in, in, in Daniel chapter 12. Verse 9, the great day of his wrath, Revelation 6, 17. The hour of his judgment, Revelation 14, 7. The end of the world, Matthew 13, 40. The tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. What do you think this is? The abomination which makes desolate. The tenth sign triggers this great Holocaust of unimaginable horror, spectacular divine judgment against a world that hates God and hates Jesus and hates the gospel. There's never been a time in history that describes what Jesus is describing and is about to describe for a detailed description, you're going to have to read the book of Revelation, chapter 6, all the way to chapter 16. There, John describes seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments, increasing intensity, judgments from God. One third of the people on the planet, gone. Another, the, those who are left, a third of them, gone. Both the book of Daniel and Revelation reveal that the Antichrist will horrify and tyrannically control the world for a time, times, and a half of a time. That means half a year, a year, two years, three and a half years. Again, I believe this is referenced by Daniel, by Jesus, by John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. And then in verse 22, look what it says. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. You mean shorter than three and a half years? I think that the time is, the appointed time is established. And the appointed time of judgment is established. But I think what Jesus is basically saying is that if this continued for decades then all human beings would cease to exist. But Jesus says, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Who are the elect? These are the people who have been established by God for salvation. There's three people who, are, who make reference to, to the elect in the Bible. Angels are called elect in the Bible. 
Christians are called elect in the Bible. Saved Jews are called elect in the Bible. The final period of seven, the heptad, shortened, cut short, translates a very specific Greek word which means abbreviate, cut short, terminate dramatically. Since the elect is sometimes used to describe believers in the church age, some have suggested that, well, this means that the church has to go through this time of catastrophe. I don't necessarily agree with that. Others suggest that the catching away or the rapture of the church must take place either in the middle of this time period or at the end of this time period. I couldn't disagree more. Those of you who are students of prophecy know that there are three distinct groups called the elect, the church, Israel, and those who are saved. There are other arguments that can be made for the mid-tribulational rapture or the post-tribulational rapture, <clears throat> but for the person who tries to use this verse to make their case, I think are, are barking up the wrong tree. Isaiah 45.4, Isaiah 65.9, Romans 11.28 specifically reference Israel as elect. And so not just Christians are called elect. And remember what we've seen so far in the chapter. Verse 15 is a reference to a Jewish temple. Verses 16 through 36, Jesus is making reference to people in Jerusalem, Judea. The point is that Jesus is speaking about Israel. A more important question is, why will there be a tribulation? I think in part to harvest the crop that has been sown. Let me just put it bluntly. The Bible says God is not mocked. What people sow, they will reap. Human beings will sow what they reap. Satan will sow what he reaps. You see, I think that there are three great groups that are being discussed here. Human beings collectively. Demonic beings, both individually and collectively and sovereign nations. The tribulation is going to prove once and for all that Satan was lying, that he was never telling the truth. The tribulation is going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt for those who claim that you can have life and love and peace and harmony apart from Christ and apart from God are deluded. In short, Satan's going to have a brief victory. But God's going to have the final victory. The tribulation is going to prepare a multitude of people for heaven. But the tribulation is going to prepare even more people for judgment. Remember why this is happening. The tribulation takes place in part to punish the Gentiles for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And for this cause, God will send a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. One text says, the lie. The lie. It's not just a series of lies, but the most important lie. And you know what I think the lie is? The lie is 
that God isn't really God, that Jesus isn't really God, and that this Antichrist is in fact God. The, the tribulation is going to take place not just to punish the Gentiles, but also, it says, that they might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The tribulation will take place to purge the Gentiles, to purge Israel, and to prepare the earth for the time when Jesus will actually, literally sit on his father's throne in Jerusalem. But we have to stop. Lord, thanks for this time. Thanks for this information. Lord, there's so much more that could be said, but Lord, again, I pray that you would cause us to start thinking carefully about what has been said. And again, Lord, we know that the earth is going to experience judgment. But we also know that grace precedes judgment. That we're living in a time of grace. We can turn from our sin. We can turn to the Savior. Lord, we can cry out to you and we can say, Lord, I don't want to march into a future without you. Without your love and without your promises and without the hope that you've established in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that every single person who's listening to the sound of my voice or watching this will turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. That they'll receive Christ. That they'll trust Him completely for salvation. And that, Lord, we could believe no matter what, no matter our differences and divisions, that at the appointed time, you will accomplish exactly what you say you will accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.